Yes, building a made in America clean energy future will help safeguard our national security. Yes, will help us tackle climate change. Yes, it's going to help us ensure that Americans create millions of good paying jobs for generations to come. And yes, no wonder we haven't passed any of that. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Hey there, from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and... Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. Then there are the streaming affiliates on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites, or at least most of them, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, where we continue to fight like hell, as we have for nearly 20 years now, to protect what is left of your democracy and your planet. Welcome to the Bradcast. Glad you could join us. We have some very big voting and election law news today. Oh, good. Coming out of Florida, mm. of all places. Well, I know, no, good, but it, though, no, but it's good, good news. Okay. I know you're already. You hear Florida, and, and it's all of, over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this know. is good. No, so, th- okay, um, I look forward to it. This is good. This is big, and uh, frankly, it's news that could, or at least should, affect. Voter suppression laws being passed by Republicans in swing states all over the country. So uh, anyway, it's good for now. It's good for today. I will explain it shortly, but we will get to uh, that news after some other breaking news on Thursday afternoon, after we uh, get through this other big news uh, that also broke this afternoon from the White House regarding what President Biden described as Putin's price hike or given Biden's actions, uh, what he characterized as protection from Putin's price hike. President Joe Biden on Thursday afternoon ordered the release of one million barrels of oil per day from the nation's strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, One million barrels a day for the next six months, a bid to control energy prices that have spiked after Russia's assault on Ukraine and as the U.S. and allies impose steep sanctions on Russia in response. 
The president also wants Congress to impose financial penalties on oil and gas companies that lease public lands but are not producing on those lands. For example, the 9,000 permits to drill that they already have that they're not using on about a million public acres of land that the oil companies are basically allowing to go untapped even as they raise prices at the pump in the middle of a war and continue to enjoy their post-pandemic war profiteering. Because frankly, it is nothing less than that, as I see it. And according to Joe Biden, apparently how the president sees it. He also said he will invoke the Defense Production Act to encourage the mining of critical minerals in the U.S. needed for batteries for electric vehicles, part of a broader push to shift toward cleaner energy sources and reduce the use of fossil fuels. Here's President Biden's brief remarks at the White House on Thursday afternoon. And then Desi Doyen will be here to help us decode and unpack some of these executive orders. Good afternoon. As I said in my State of the Union address, I'm going to always be honest with the American people. Today, I want to talk with you about uh, the cost here at home of Putin's decision to brutally and savagely invade a sovereign nation. Fact is, he's causing thousands of deaths and untold destruction. Working with our NATO allies and our European partners and beyond that, we, uh, we're responding. We're aiding the Ukrainian people, both economically and militarily, while leaving the most punishing economic sanctions against Russia ever used against another nation in place and increasing them. <clears throat> Thus far, these actions are crippling Russia's economy, isolating Putin from the world and helping Ukrainians fight for their country and ease their suffering. But as I've said from the start, Putin's war is imposing a cost on America and our allies and democracies around the world. Today, I want to talk about one aspect of Putin's war that affects and has real effects on American people. Putin's price hike that Americans and our allies are feeling at the pump. I know how much it hurts. As you've heard me say before, I grew up in a family like many of you, where the price of a gallon of gasoline went up and was discussion at the kitchen table. Our family budgets, your family budgets, to fill a tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war. So today I'm laying out a two-part plan, not only to ease the pain that families are feeling right now, but to end this era of dependence and uncertainty and to lay a new foundation for true and lasting American energy independence. Parenthetically, just imagine if, in fact, Europe didn't have to count on Russian oil, if they were energy independent. It would change the nature of so much. The problem we're facing with gas prices has two roots. First, the pandemic. When COVID struck, demand for oil plummeted, so production slowed down worldwide. It's because of the strength and the speed of our recovery, demand for oil shot back up much faster than the supply. That's why the cost of gas began to rise last year. The second route is Vladimir Putin. The start of this year, gas was about $3.30 a gallon. Today, it's about averaging 4.20, 4.22, it's higher in many states. Nearly a dollar more in less than three months. And the reason for that is because of Putin's war. 
And now many people are no longer buying Russian oil around the world. I banned the Russian import of oil here in America. Republicans and Democrats in Congress called for it and supported it. It was the right thing to do. But I said at the time, it's going to come with a cost. As Russian oil comes off the global market, supply of oil drops and prices are rising. Now Putin's price hike is hitting Americans at the pump. Which, uh, which brings me to the first part of my plan. To immediately increase the supply of oil, our prices are rising because of Putin's action. There isn't enough supply. And the bottom line is, if we want lower gas prices, we need to have more oil supply right now. For U.S. oil companies that are recording their largest profits in years, they have a choice. One, they can put those profits to productive use by producing more oils, restarting idle wells or producing on the sites they already are leasing, giving the American people a break by passing some of the savings on to their customers and lowering the price of the pump. Or they can, as some of them are doing, exploit the situation, sit back, ship those profits to the investors, and while American families struggle to make ends meet. Look, this is a moment of consequence and peril for the world and pain at the pump for American families. It's also a moment of patriotism. I want to acknowledge those companies that have already announced they're increasing immediate production. They're investing money to produce more oil and also clean technology we need to reduce our dependence on oil in the future. They have everything they need, nothing standing in their way. And they've indicated they will be producing an extra one million barrels of oil per day, probably starting as early as this fall. That's progress. But some companies have been pretty blunt. They don't want to increase supply because Putin's price hike means higher profits. One CEO even acknowledged that they don't care if the price of a, ga- a barrel of oil goes to $200 a barrel. They're not going to step up the production. I say enough. Enough of lavishing excessive profits on investors and payouts and buybacks when the American people are watching. The world is watching. U.S. oil companies made nearly $80 billion in profit last year. And this year, those profits are expected to continue to soar. This is the time, not the time, to sit on record profits. It's time to step up for the good of your country, the good of the world, to invest in immediate production that we need to respond to Vladimir Putin, to provide some relief for your customers, not investors and executives. Look, I'm a capitalist. I have no problem with corporations turning to good profit. But companies have an obligation that goes beyond just their shareholders, to their customers, their communities, and their country. No American company should take advantage of a pandemic or of Vladimir Putin's actions to enrich themselves at the expense of American families. Investing those profits profits in production and innovation, that's what they should do. Invest in your customers. And it isn't just like, it's not the patriotic thing, it's good for your business as well. Right now, Oil and gas industry is sitting on nearly 9,000 unused but approved permits for production on federal lands. Or more than a million unused acres they have a right to, to pump on. Families can't afford that companies sit on these their hands. So, to help execute this first part of my plan, I'm calling for a use-it-or-lose-it policy. Congress should make companies pay fees on wells on federal leases they haven't used in years 
and acres of public land they're hoarding without production. Companies that are already producing from these wells won't be affected. But those sitting on unused leases and idle wells will either have to start producing or pay the price for their inaction. Look, the action I'm calling for will make a real difference over time. But the truth is, it takes months, not days, for companies to increase production. That's why the next part of my plan is so important. Today, I'm authorizing the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months, over 180 million barrels for the strategic, from, the, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is a wartime bridge to increase oil supply until production ramps up later this year. And it is by far the largest release of our, net, of our national reserve in our history. It will provide historic amount of supply for a historic amount of time, a six-month bridge to the fall. And we'll use the revenue from selling the oil now to restock the Strategic Petroleum Reserve when prices are lower. So, we'll be ready. We'll be ready for future emergencies. Folks, I've coordinated this release with allies and partners around the world. Already, I have we have commitments from other countries to release tens of millions of additional barrels into the market. Together, our combined efforts will supply well over a million barrels a day. Nations coming together to deny Putin the ability to weaponize his energy resources against American families and families and democracies around the world. Now, for the first part of my plan, is about meeting an immediate crisis. The second part is about declaring real American energy independence in the long term so that we never have to deal with this problem again. Ultimately, we and the whole world need to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels altogether. We need to choose long-term security over energy and climate vulnerability. We need to double down on our commitment to clean energy and tackling the climate crisis with our partners and allies around the world. And we can do that by passing my plan that's literally before the Senate right now. The United States Congress right now has been there for well over a month to speed the transition to a clean energy future that's made in America with American products and American values. We need to embrace all the tools and technologies that can help us free us from our dependence on fossil fuels, move us toward a more homegrown clean energy. Technologies made by American companies and American workers so we can bolster democratic supply, excuse me, domestic supply chains here at home and export those technologies around the world to reduce greenhouse gases. That's why today, I'm issuing a directive to strengthen our clean energy economy. I'm going to use the Defense Production Act to secure American supply chains for the critical materials that go into batteries for electric vehicles and the storage of renewable energy, lithium, graphite, nickel, and so much more. We need to end our long-term reliance on China and other countries for inputs that will power the future. And I'll use every tool I have to make that happen. Yes, a building a made-in-America clean energy future will help safeguard our national security. Yes, it will help us tackle climate change. Yes, it's going to help us ensure that Americans create millions of good-paying jobs for generations to come. But most important, the most important thing my plan will do right away is save your family money. Here's what I mean. Under my plan, which is before the Congress now, we can take advantage of the next generation of electric vehicles that a typical driver will save about $80 a month from not having to pay gas at the pump. 
If your home is powered by safer, cheaper, cleaner electricity like solar or heat pumps, you can save about $500 a month on average. Don't take my word for it. The CEOs of 11 of America's largest utility companies came to see me at the White House several weeks ago. They told me if we pass my plans before the Congress now, typical families will see savings show up in their utility bills immediately. Costs will come down even more as we innovate and develop cutting-edge energy storage technologies, clean hydrogen technologies, advanced nuclear technology, carbon capture and sequestration technologies. And by the way, this week's the benefit I included in the bipartisan infrastructure law to help families weatherize their homes are being delivered. My administration is making $3.2 billion available from this legislation to provide up to $6,500 direct payment for working-class families to be able to weatherize their homes, to save them money, to keep them warm in the winter and cool in the summer. It's a direct grant. This program has been around for a while, and in the past, it's delivered to families, average families, another $327 in savings when they weatherize. But now, we have the ability to reach 10 times as many families because of the legislation that we already passed. In the, in, in the legislation. In addition to that, we're also setting new standards to boost fuel economies for new vehicles sold in America. Within five years, we're going to travel 10 miles more on every single gallon we have because the average fuel economy of 49 miles of the gallon is going to be required. That means hundreds of dollars in savings for families at the pump. We're also setting similar standards for appliances, from your air conditioner to your microwave, your refrigerator, washers, dryers. It's just one of 100 actions we're taking to save the average family $100 per year in utility bills. Look, the bottom line is this. Between wrapping up, ramping up production in the short term and driving down demand in the long term, we can free ourselves from our dependence on imported oil from across the world. Look, I know gas prices are painful. I get it. My plan's going to help ease that pain today and safeguard again against tomorrow. I'm open to ideas to strengthen the plan, but I'll not be put off and put it on hold. It's time to deliver true long-term energy independence in America once and for all. And I'm going to continue to use every tool at my disposal to protect you from Putin's price hike. It's not time for politics. America's, Americans can't afford that right now. So let's meet this moment together. Remember, we're the only nation that has turned every crisis we ever faced into an opportunity. We have a crisis, the price at the pump. So let's show some true strength in this nation, show our unity, our resolve, our innovative spirit in America, and come out of this long term much better off. If we stand up to the bullies of the world, the autocrats and dictators, we stand up for those who are, are, who are ready to unite, unite with us, United States of America. So may God bless you and may God protect our troops. Thank you. That was President Biden at the White House on Thursday uh, using the bully pulpit, uh, calling on Congress to pass a fee for unused drilling permits, his uh, so-called use it or lose it plan, announcing his release of one million barrels of oil per day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for the next six months. Uh, calling that a wartime bridge. 
his historic, uh, uh, calling it also an historic amount to of, uh, of oil to supply for an historic amount of time. Never before has there been such a large release uh, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, I believe. Uh, at the same time, he called to uh, speed the transition to a clean energy future with products made in America to free us from fossil fuels. He also announced that he was issuing a directive to use the Defense Production Act for critical materials that go into electric vehicle batteries, underline the $3.2 billion that are now available via the Infrastructure Act that has already been passed into law that can give uh, families up to uh, $6,500 in grants to help weatherize their homes uh, and requirements for uh, better efficiency of various products like refrigerators, washers, air conditioners, air conditioners, and so forth, which sounds a lot like the rules we already have out here in California. It does. If I'm not mistaken. <laughs> you are not mistaken. Uh, anyway, Desi Doyen, uh, so help us unpack some of this. Uh, that seems like a lot of gas, one million barrels a day. But hey, I guess this is wartime. Uh, this sort of uh, thing is what the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is for. But at one million barrels a day for six months, how much is, should we be concerned about how much that leaves us in the reserve? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, because, of course, they will be replacing it as after gas prices do come down, oil prices, I mm -hmm. should say, come down. Um, if we used the entire 180 million barrels for the next 180 days, mm -hmm. one million a day, then we would still have, I think, at Today's current amount that's in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, yeah. we would have another 370-something days remaining of a million barrels a, a day. day. So, so, you know, it won't replace all of America's uh, mm -hmm. oil use, but Biden also said that he would be, he is already coordinating with U.S. allies who are also going to be releasing from their Strategic Petroleum Reserves, which will then put a huge amount of oil onto the global market. Now, how quickly should... Americans expect the price at the pump to come down. You know, I get so I get these uh, alerts because I'm signed up to Gas Buddy on my phone, and they send me these email alerts when it, when the prices go up or down at my favorite stations. For the past, I don't know, several weeks, pretty much every day, I'm getting these alerts saying uh, from Gas Buddy, uh, prices are going up at your favorite station. I noticed last night. And I think the news had already come out that uh, uh, Biden was uh, th considering uh, taking this action today. I noticed last night I finally got a notice from Gas Buddy saying prices at your favorite stations are going down right. for a change. And the announcement itself brought down a key U.S. Uh, benchmark for crude oil by $6. And it continues to fall. The last time I checked, it, it was just past $6. So it will have an effect. And that was just on the announcement. That's yeah. not on the actual release yet right. of all of this oil from all of the countries onto the global market. So it'll take days, maybe weeks, probably more likely, um, because of the, uh, the amount of time it takes for such things to shake out and also because the oil companies have to decide that they're going to yes. low, low, lower prices, which they have not done yet. Which you have pointed out in the past that when oil futures go up, man, price of the pump goes up the next day. When it comes yeah. down, oh, it takes a while for that to get uh, reflected uh, at the gas stations. Yeah, and as an AP survey and also as oil CEOs have been saying openly and publicly on these earnings calls that mm -hmm. they are not interested in increasing production right now. They are only interested 
interested in returning cash to their investors. Yep. So that is the other reason why the oil industry is not producing more, because, gosh, that would cut into their profits. And they're, and they're saying this out loud. Yeah. I mean, they are war profiteering. I don't know, if uh, do we even have laws anymore against uh, war profiteering? But the uh, a survey released... Just last week by the Dallas Federal Reserve found that about 59 percent of executives surveyed said that investor pressure to preserve capital discipline amid high prices was the reason that they were not pumping more. They could be pumping more, which would lower the prices. Fewer than 10 percent blamed government regulations, even though. Republicans are out there saying, oh, it's Joe Biden keeping us from uh, drilling more and so forth. These guys are making record profits during a time of war. They are purposely trying to not lower their prices. Right. And they're blaming uh, Joe Biden for it, which I guess is why he is uh, calling now for these fees for unused permits. Yes, the use it or lose it, which I yeah. think is a fantastic idea. However, it does require Congress to take action. Oh, so well, then never I, mind. I think we'll run yeah. into the Manchin veto with Senator oh, Joe Manchin, boy. who yeah. has been making noises recently about how he wants to make some kind of deal. But boy, it's going to have to include expanding fossil fuel production. <laughs> right. So the use it or lose it thing, that I think is really smart politics. Um, You know, it's basically charging oil companies an idling fee for sitting on the 9,000 something permits that are that they these are leases that they already have that are already permitted that are already ready to drill. No one can stop them. But they have been screaming and yelling about trying to get even more of the public's lands to uh, just stockpile more of these leases. More unused leases. I know. And, And in reality, the vast majority of oil production in the United States comes on private lands. So that's another lie that the oil industry and Republicans have been telling, that it's somehow Joe Biden's fault that, you know, because he's paused just for a moment to, like, let's make sure that we're doing this the right way and Uh charging enough in royalties and all that. Oh, my goodness. They screamed and squealed. But in reality, that's not the problem at all. So how does all of this square, then, if he's calling for more production, more uh, pumping of oil on these, you know, these uh, uh, permits that have already been issued? How does that square with his vow to lower greenhouse gas emissions? Isn't that if they if they did what he is calling for, wouldn't that skyrocket our emissions? Um, I well, this is the the question here. So there is not an actual increase in production that is folded into Biden's plans. He uh-huh. is telling oil companies to go ahead and increase production. And yes, the more oil we burn, the worse we're going to make climate change. However. Um, you know, we we can't drill our way out of the climate crisis, mm-hmm. obviously, but, you know, he realizes that working families need help right now. And if uh, if the economy is in such a place where voters are angry come November with the midterm elections, if Republicans retake Congress, yep. the control of Congress in November, then they're going to kill all the pl- climate policy. They're yep. going to kill all of this stuff. So it's one of those things where the uh, you have to sort of prioritize getting through this part in <laughs> order to get on the path to be on the correct path to cut uh, climate emissions long term. Speaking of which, he also uh, mentioned uh, in the infrastructure plan, which has already passed, which is a bi- the so-called bipartisan infrastructure plan, that there is now, uh, as of today, some $3.2 billion for home weatherization available to uh, up to $6,500 per household. Now, I know that you know people think, 
well, putting weather stripping on my home, putting in new insulation and so forth, that's not going to make a big difference. It's more than that, though. Yeah. It's about uh, helping people, per- you know, with rebates, say, for all electric heat, heat pumps, mm-hmm. rebates to buy new energy efficiency appliances. So there are other things that are in the infrastructure bill that will help, especially low-income people who mm-hmm. can't afford these price increases, to help them weatherize their homes and be prepared for also, you know, resiliency with the coming uh, accelerating climate impacts like heat waves and floods and stuff. Does it make a big difference for emissions when we're talking about sealing up this house or that house? Absolutely, yes. And it's not just homes. You know, it's also buildings. There's also funding in the infrastructure law, which, by the way, Republicans did not vote for. There's also (laughs) uh, funding in there for buildings as well, because buildings overall contribute about uh, not quite a third of U.S. emissions. Really? So we have to uh, seal up our buildings and make them way more energy efficient in in order to cut our emissions from that sector. All right. Last point I want to hit here is uh, invoking the defense. Defense Production Act. We've called on him to def- uh, invoke that to uh, to get uh, heating and air condition manufacturers to start building heat pumps, electric heat pumps, like crazy, to ship on over to Europe, where there are you know some seventy five million gas furnaces, which are now reliant on Russian gas. We could build them here. We could ship them over there. Uh, we've talked about that on this show with uh, Bill McKibben. Uh, I don't think he's invoked the uh, Defense Production Act for that yet. He did not. But he uh, did invoke it, or is invoking it uh, today, f- uh, to uh, drill, to, to mine for the minerals needed for batteries used in electric cars. How big a deal is this? How much does the U.S. rely on other countries, whether it's Russia uh, or China? You know, for the for the minerals that we need to build the batteries for the electric vehicles that we need. So this is huge. The move that he's made, it means that these battery materials, these metals and minerals will be added to the list of items that are covered under the 1950 Defense Production Act. And that will help to encourage and fund uh, expansion of minerals production here in the United States. So he has to actually add these minerals to the law in order to the list of mm-hmm. the, on this law in order to make this happen. And we, we really do have to massively increase domestic production right now because we are totally reliant right now. Most of these metals come from South America, Russia, China, Australia, and South Africa. And then all of them pretty much are shipped to China for refining. So in order to build up our own domestic supply chain for all of this stuff, and, and when we're talking about you know producing millions of electric vehicles every single year, we would have to really massively ramp it up in order to drop the price here, but also to make sure that we're no longer beholden uh, to other countries and who can then jerk us around by withholding supply. Yeah, and we also see how uh, when you just take Russian gas off the market, how that affects uh, the entire market. Exactly. So, it's like the entire global thing and, and the global yeah. market. But also Putin uh, a few days ago said that he was ready to include forcing countries to pay for all of these raw materials in rubles to prop up the ruble, which would also fund his war machine. Some of which, if I, uh, some of which, if I recall, we discuss a little bit in our later uh, our latest Green News report coming up a little bit later, which we recorded before 
Biden's address at the White House, uh, though, uh, Des, you did anticipate some of it in that report. That's coming up uh, a little bit later. Got to yes. take a quick break here and we will uh, come back with some some big election voting news out of a federal court in Florida on Thursday, which, as noted, could or should have a big effect on voter suppression laws being adopted all over the country by Republican controlled states. That is straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by Bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As I said, uh, some big news that, that, that could or should be huge news around the country. Uh, it's really interesting how uh, quickly uh, when this news broke within just the last uh, hour or two, immediately all of the news outlets uh, who bothered to cover cover it immediately said, oh, this is going to be changed. This is going to be overturned on appeal. Don't worry about this. <laughs> It's a huge law. Uh, It's a huge ruling, frankly. A federal judge in Florida ruled on Thursday that sections of Florida's new year-old election law were unconstitutional and racially motivated and, and here's really the biggest part of this, he placed the state under a 10-year order, the state of Florida, under a 10-year order to receive preclearance from the federal government before changing any voting laws ever again within those 10 years. That's a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. As I explain uh, in a moment, I'll I'll tell you why it's such a very big deal. But the 288-page order by Judge Mark Walker of the Federal District Court in Tallahassee uh, declaring the right to vote, quote, under siege in Florida based on the state legislature's record of uh, on, on, on passing these type of laws issued the first federal court ruling striking down key parts of any voting law that has been enacted by Republicans in battleground states since the 2020 election, as GOP states had used or are still using Donald Trump's false claims about voter fraud in that election to pass a host of laws to make it harder for people, usually people who tend to vote Democratic, to vote. But apparently and happily, Judge Walker is not having it today. Quote, for the past 20 years, the majority of the Florida legislature has attacked the voting rights of its black constituents. Judge Walker wrote in the decision, which frequently quoted uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Quote, they have done they have done so not as, in the words of Dr. King, vicious racists with the governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, but as part of a cynical effort to suppress turnout among their opponents' supporters. That, writes Walker, the law does not permit. Judge Walker's decision is certain to be appealed 
The New York Times quickly noted, adding that it is likely to be overturned either by the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in Atlanta or by the Supreme Court, which has been chipping away at laws protecting voting rights for a decade now. Signed into law by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in May of 2021 after previously bragging, by the way, how Florida's 2020 election was carried out so very smoothly and so very securely without any evidence of fraud. The election legislation nonetheless was passed. It's known as Senate Bill 90. It limits the use of drop boxes for uh, 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 absentee votes. It adds more ID requirements for those who are requesting absentee ballots. It limits who can collect or drop off ballots. It further restricts voter registration in the Sunshine State, and it restricts giving voters food or water while they waited in long lines to cast a ballot. And it further empowers partisan observers during the ballot counting process, among other provisions criticized by voting rights advocates. The new law was challenged last May in federal court by voting rights advocates um, led by the League of Women Voters in Florida. According to Judge Walker, plaintiffs, quote, allege that SB 90 runs roughshod over the right to vote, unnecessarily making voting harder for all eligible Floridians, unduly burdening disabled voters and intentionally targeting minority voters, all to improve the electoral prospects of the party in power. Having reviewed all of the evidence, this court finds that for the most part, plaintiffs are right. Walker writes in his ruling that certain provisions of the law intentionally discriminated against black voters, though he notes that plaintiffs were not able to prove intentional discrimination against Latino voters in Florida. And he says that the law fundamentally was designed with partisan aims. Quote, this court finds that the legislature enacted SB 90 to improve the Republican Party's electoral prospects, not to respond to the general political mood, as the state had argued. Election law expert Rick Hassan of UC Irvine wrote, quote, This is an opinion that full-throatedly reads the Voting Rights Act in the expansive way that Congress intended it to be read and essentially dares the higher court to overrule it. Given Walker's impos uh, imposition of the uh, pre-clearance requirement on Florida, you should not be dis uh, surprised when and if those uh, higher courts do, because Republican judges pretend that they interpret laws based on what Congress intended. And then what do they do? The exact opposite. But they just say that they're doing it. Right. And therefore, that's good enough for right. oh, most yeah. of the corporate We believe media. in law and order. We believe in, in paying attention to what Congress meant when they wrote this law. We believe in strict textualism and exactly what the law says, except when we say no. Exactly. Except when we do the opposite. By applying the little used provision, and this is really the, the, the key part here, uh, by pr uh, applying the little used provision of Section 3 of the Voting Rights Act, known as bail-in, the provision allows judges to place jurisdictions under additional federal oversight if they are found to be repeat offenders in racial discrimination cases. And that's what the judge did here. So this is a very big deal using bail-in, uh, even if it's uh, eventually overturned. It's a great reminder that, yes, Section 3 of the Voting Rights Act 
still exists. Now, to explain this, you will recall that in uh, back in 2013, the Supreme Court gutted Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act. That section spelled out which jurisdictions around the country who had a history of using racist laws uh, to prevent minorities from voting, which of those jurisdictions had to, under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, have any new laws approved, pre-cleared by either the Department of Justice or a three-judge federal panel before those judge could be those uh, laws could be implemented. So Section 5, the preclearance section, was a landmark for voting rights because it allowed laws with a racially discriminatory intent or effect to be blocked before they could go into effect. Before they could harm voters instead Correct. of after. Now, for years, uh, this made it much harder to enact such laws going back to all the way back to 1965 when this thing was passed. And when Chief Justice John Roberts and his right wing majority on the Supreme Court did away with the preclearance uh, requirement, claiming there's no longer a need for preclearance. There's so little discrimination at the polls now, unlike back in 1965 when the landmark Voting Rights Act was initially adopted. You'll recall Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her dissent in response, railed that the reason there was less discrimination since 1965 was thanks to the Voting Rights Act and its preclearance rules that prevented it. She famously wrote in that dissent that, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. And of course, she was right. As we saw, as soon as states were released from the preclearance requirement, they immediately began to pass one discriminatory law after another, including in places, for example, like North Carolina, you may remember, where their massive voting restriction law mandating the, uh, you know, new photo ID restrictions, blocking early voting on Sundays and more. That was passed immediately. Like within days. After the uh, 2013 uh, Selma decision in, at the Supreme Court. Yeah. It was described, that North Carolina law, as the mother of all voter suppression laws when it was passed, and that law was eventually, eventually struck down by a federal appeals court that found state GOP lawmakers had indeed written those laws with, quote, almost surgical precision in order to discourage voting by black voters. But that took three years before that could happen, because with Section 5 preclearance gone, in North Carolina, challengers had to use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which also bars discrimination, just like Section 5, but only after the crime has been done, after the law has been put in place, after voters have already been disenfranchised. That's why Section 5 preclearance was so important to stop the laws before they went into effect. Now, Section 5 preclearance actually still exists. What the Supreme Court killed back in 2013 was Section 4. That was the list, the formula that was used to determine which jurisdictions would be covered by Section 5 preclearance. 
So that's what the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act was going to correct. It would have had it not been blocked by all Senate Republicans, along with the help of Democrats Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who claimed they supported it, but then they refused to modify the Senate filibuster in order to pass it. Uh, even as all, you know, 50 Democrats claimed they supported it, Manchin and Cinema made sure that it wouldn't pass. But the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would have restored the formula to determine which jurisdictions must get preclearance before new laws can new election laws can be enacted based on their history of racial discrimination in in voting laws. And of course, we have seen a landslide of these type of laws adopted around the country in GOP states that would have been covered previously by Section 5 uh, since the uh, 2013 ruling, and in particular over the past year. We've seen tons of them since Donald Trump decided to pretend that he lost the presidential election because of fraud, and Republicans who know better use that lie nonetheless to pass more restrictions on voting as they did in this case, in Florida, restrictions that are being challenged in court, but not before they're already going into effect because that preclearance is gone and they're very likely to have real consequences in elections, as we recently saw, for example, in Texas, who held the first uh, primary, first midterm primary in the nation on March 1, when thousands of vote by mail ballots were rejected under that state's latest voting restriction law. But there is also Another Voting Rights Act provision that has not yet been killed by the Supreme Court, and that's the provision allowing the courts to bail in jurisdictions, to add jurisdictions to the list of those who should be covered by preclearance. Preclearance still exists. It's just that nobody has to you know, be under it until now. And that's what Judge Walker did on Thursday to the entire state of Florida. So, yeah, big deal. Courts, as the Times notes, have used the bail-in provision very sparingly since the Voting Rights Act was enacted in 65. Only New Mexico and Arkansas have been placed under preclearance requirements by judges, and both of them were decades ago. A few counties and cities have been bailed in as well. Bail-in requirements typically sunset after a period of time. They're limited to specific elements of voting laws. Judge Walker's decision imposes a 10-year preclearance requirement on any uh, changes to uh, Florida election law related to things like drop boxes and a requirement that voter registration groups warn people that they are signing up to vote that their application might not meet the state's deadlines, for example. So there are specific things that he's uh, putting in place here that are targeted to what it was that Florida did in their law. Since the Supreme Court invalidated the preclearance requirements uh, in 2013, Democrats and voting rights advocates have tried to persuade courts to impose the bail-in requirements on things like uh, photo ID restrictions and redistricting maps in places like North Carolina and Texas. But federal judges have declined to do so in the major cases. But now a federal judge, at least for now, has finally done so. Nicholas Stephanopoulos uh, of Harvard Law School, he's an expert on election law. He says, quote, we've seen other districts, uh, district courts do aggressive things in election law cases, and we've seen a lot of those decisions 
get reversed by appellate courts or the Supreme Court. He says, I would not be shocked if this litigation falls into that pattern. Florida Republicans, uh, you'll not be surprised, blasted the decision by Judge Walker. He was appointed, by the way, by uh, President Obama in 2012. Uh, And, by the way, he has found himself reversing a bevy of discriminatory uh, Florida laws uh, going back for years now. So he's familiar with the fact that they do this all the time. Kind of fed up, maybe. Kind of, yeah. He was... uh, 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 The uh, governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, was asked about the ruling at an appearance on Thursday in West Palm Beach. He described it as, quote, performative partisanship. (laughs) And he predicted a reversal on appeal. He said, I would not be on the receiving end of that. I would not want to be on the receiving end of that appeal if I were a judge. It's not going to be able to withstand appellate scrutiny, DeSantis insisted. Meanwhile, the League of Women Voters... Uh, who brought the case, they were overjoyed, according to a statement they sent us after their ruling came in. Cecile Schoon, the president of League of Women Voters of Florida, said, quote, for democracy to work, it must include all voices. Senate Bill 90 was clearly an anti-voter measure that raised barriers to voting with specific impacts on elderly voters, voters with disabilities, students, communities of color. The League is gratified. And once again, the constitutional rights of Florida voters have superseded partisan politics. Well, for the moment, anyway, Selena Stewart, the chief counsel at the League of Women Voters, said, quote, Florida's Senate Bill 90 was one of the most egregious anti-voter laws in the country. It was aimed squarely at black voters, voters with disabilities, voters with limited income, state legislatures everywhere should recognize that anti-voter laws like SB 90 violate the fundamental rights of the constituents. We call on legislatures around the country to stop making laws that impede the rights of the people they are elected to protect and serve. Well, good luck with that, Selena. Yeah, I mean, it shows how much your vote matters because otherwise Republicans wouldn't be working so very hard to stop you from voting. One of those Republicans, Wilton Simpson, he's the president of the Florida State Senate. He said in his statement that the ruling was, quote, highly unprofessional, (laughs) inaccurate and unbecoming of an officer of the court. A 288 page ruling unbecoming of an officer of the court, because, you know, being a law and order judge these days, apparently, who follows the law as Congress intended it, that is now unbecoming of an officer of the court. That's how twisted. That's how upside down we now are in this country, at least uh, when it comes to Republicans, where apparently, you know, following the law uh, means that, you know, if if Republicans don't get to uh, adopt laws that actually hurt their own voters and help Republicans to win elections, well, that is just highly unprofessional, unbecoming of an officer of the court. We will see what happens. I will not be surprised if this gets overturned, of course, not with the uh, corrupt federal judiciary we now have in place, but good for Judge Walker. I hope other judges are paying attention, other judges around the country who do still give a damn about the rule of law and the landmark Voting Rights Act, what is left of it. But we shall see. For the moment, anyway, good news for voters in Florida. Quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen in our Green News Report straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. 
The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Green show today. Very energy <laughs> intensive show, Desi Doyle. Yes, it is. Because uh, that's kind of our reality these days. It is kind of our reality. And I should note, uh, by way of reality, today's GNR was laid down before Joe Biden gave his remarks at the White House today about releasing a million barrels of uh, oil a day for the next six months. With that said, here is our latest Green News report. Germany on Wednesday issued an early warning that it could be heading for a gas supply emergency. Europe prepares for energy shortages. I want to understand from you how you reconcile the administration's climate goals right now with what clearly is a shift in posture around energy and fossil fuels. Biden administration insists climate change remains a priority. Plus, a national transition to electric vehicles would save both money and lives. New study finds all of those transitions and more straight ahead, hopefully, from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I'm willing to pay $4 a gallon. Hell, I'll pay $15 a gallon because I drive a Tesla. How nice for you, Stephen Colbert. Glad you can afford a Tesla. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the Russian war on Ukraine is not working out as Russia had planned, but it's also going to hurt them, it seems, very much when it comes to the key part of its own economy. Yeah, and actually there will be pain all around for everyone. The European Union is divided over when and how to enact an embargo on Russian energy imports in order to stop funding Russia's war on Ukraine and free itself from the Kremlin's grip. But Poland announced Wednesday that it is moving ahead and will ban all imports of Russian coal, gas, and oil by the end of this year in order to stop Russia from using energy, quote, as a way to blackmail. Nice. Poland's prime minister urged other EU countries to move faster to phase out Russian energy, specifically calling out Germany, which has resisted an embargo due to the economic impact. The German government said this week that Russia told them it won't require countries opposing its invasion of Ukraine to pay for Russian gas with Russian rubles, at least not yet. Good. However, Germany officially activated emergency plans to prepare citizens and businesses in the event Russia abruptly halted gas deliveries entirely anyway and called on them to conserve energy, among other actions. The next phase of Germany's emergency plans likely include gas rationing. Experts say the announcement is a signal to Russia that Germany is prepared for any escalation. Mm. 
Here in the U.S., as we go to air, President Biden is said to be preparing an order to release from the nation's strategic petroleum reserve up to one million barrels of oil per day for as long as 180 days to help ease gas prices that have spiked due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Wow. One million barrels a day for 180 days? Yes. U.S. oil producers have refused calls to increase production, saying they are focused on returning cash to invest. Instead, Yeah, returning cash to their own pockets. Why should they help when there's profits to be made? It's only a world at war. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen countered criticisms that a new agreement between the U.S. and the EU to increase natural gas deliveries to Europe would undercut climate targets. Yellen said there is no escaping the reality that it will take time for Europe to phase out Russian gas while simultaneously bringing new renewable energy sources online. Yellen also rejected calls from some big U.S. banks to hit the brakes on climate policy. If anything, the problem is that we haven't moved as rapidly as we should have. Um, Europe and the United States would be um, less exposed to the pressures that this conflict is putting on our energy markets if we had greater reliance on renewables. A new report from the American Lung Association finds that a nationwide transition to electric vehicles would save both money and lives. A full transition to EVs, if powered by a clean electric grid, would dramatically improve air quality and generate more than a trillion dollars in public health benefits, plus save more than 100,000 Americans from premature death caused by toxic air pollution over the next 30 years. Yeah, but big oil is not going to make big profits. Finally, a bit of optimism. A new analysis finds that clean energy sources produced more of the world's electricity than coal in 2021, with wind and solar now comprising more than 10 percent of global electricity for the first time. That's good. Plus, the world is on the verge of installing its first terawatt of solar electricity. That's a thousand gigawatts of solar electricity. According to Bloomberg News, it took decades to get from the first primitive solar panels of the 1950s to reach this milestone. But they report that the second terawatt will come in less than four years, with solar and wind energy now the planet's cheapest energy source. Nice. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Turn it on in a new kind of Let the bliss begin. <laughs> all right, we have to get out, though. Thank yes. you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can always download them for free at bradblog.com, a service made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you for that. Drop me email if you like. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>